Pine Desert of Northern New Mexico. This is Circle for Original Thinking. I'm your host, Glenn Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers, an open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each episode, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America and world, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anyone out. Join us as we embark on this quest. The renowned physicist and original thinker David Bohm once said, The great strength of science is that it is rooted in actual experience. The great weakness of contemporary science is that it emits only certain types of experience as legitimate. Life after death or the survival of post-mortem consciousness is one of the areas modern science has tended to shun despite the fact that there is a mountain of evidence that supports it. The volume of evidence is indisputable from over 1,700 solved reincarnation cases plus countless other examples of out-of-body experiences, messages received in dreams, ghost sightings, mediumship, xenoglossy, after-death communication, and so-called near-death experiences, which are often after clinical death has been noted. The evidence is there, so the question becomes, why do we not believe it? Is it because it upends our current paradigm based on the notion of a fundamentally material universe and consciousness being an epiphenomenon of matter? Or is it because our understanding of time, space, and consciousness is too limited? Our guests think it is both, and perhaps more. And fortunately, Jeffrey Mishlove and Leo Rookby are willing and able to stretch the scientific paradigm to a broader vision. Mishlev and Rukbi are the newly awarded grand prize and third place winner of the Robert Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay contest that asks for hard evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for the existence of the afterlife. Join us as they share some of that evidence with you today and more as we explore a new science of life after death. Now I want to introduce uh, the guests. First, my uh, my good friend Jeffrey Mishlove, who's a neighbor of mine here in uh, New Mexico now. Jeffrey Mishlove, PhD, is the host and producer of the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. You can find it at www.newthinkingaloud.com. He's the author of The Roots of Consciousness, The PK Man, and Psi Development Systems. Jeffrey is the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university from the University of California, Berkeley in 1980. Between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. 
Jeff was formerly the president of the Intuition Network and the vice president of the Association for Humanistic Psychology. He received the 2001 Pathfinder Award from AHP for outstanding contributions to the exploration and expansion of human consciousness. And as I mentioned before, he is the grand prize winner of the 2021 Bigelow Institute Essay Contest for the best evidence of survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. And Dr. Leo Rookby is a visiting fellow in psychology at the University of Northampton, where he is part of the Exceptional Experiences and Consciousness Studies Research Group. He earned his PhD from King's College London on contemporary witchcraft and magic, and he has written six books exploring a range of supernatural topics, most, re most recently Angels in the Trenches, about spiritualism, superstition, and other paranormal beliefs and experiences during World War I. In recognition of his numerous contributions to scholarship, he has been elected a fellow of both the Royal Historical Society and the Royal Anthropological Institute. He is also a council member of the Society for Psychical Research and editor of the Paranormal Review. And of course, he recently won third prize in the Bigelow Institute contest. So welcome to Jeff and to Leo. Uh, really good to have you with us today on the Circle for Original Thinking podcast. Um, and the, the, the first question I want to ask you both is, is, what do you feel is the importance of the Bigelow essay contest in the history of scientific research in general? and psychology and perhaps parapsychology in particular. And I'll start with you, Jeff, so. Well, I think it's probably fair to say, well, actually, uh, before I even uh, launch into <laughs> answering your question, Glenn, thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here uh, you. with you. Uh, you're a good friend, and I'm uh, delighted to participate in your podcast. And uh, now, with regard to the Bigelow Institute essay competition, I think it's fair to say that more than any other person, right? Robert Bigelow, the founder of the Bigelow Institute, has done a wonderful service not only to the scientific community, but to all of humanity by calling attention to the evidence that exists. Because in an increasingly materialistic culture, uh, the efforts to discount, to pretend that that evidence doesn't exist at all is, is very strong. And I think probably uh, one sign of that is is the fact that although I actually hold a doctoral diploma in parapsychology from the University of California, uh, it was awarded in 1980, and subsequently in the United States, there haven't been any other diplomas awarded in the field of parapsychology. Although, to be fair, uh, especially in England and Elsewhere in Europe, there are probably a few hundred scholars working in this field at, at the doctoral level who have done dissertations on parapsychological topics. So my distinction is, is rather minimal, but the suppression of this evidence is, is just enormous. And even, even today, 
uh, where uh, there's a lot of discussion. And I should point out as well that uh, consistently in the United States, over 70 percent of the population accepts the existence of an afterlife. Nevertheless, our educational and scientific institutions studiously pretend as if that evidence never existed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And Leo, what, what do you feel is the uh, importance of the Bigelow essay contest in the history of uh, the, the research, particularly? Yes. Uh, thank you, Glenn, also for having me on the show. It's, it's great to be here talking to you. Um, I can really only echo what, what Jeff has said. Uh, when the competition launched at the beginning of 2021, um, I got in touch with uh, Robert Bigelow and uh, interviewed him for the magazine of the Society for Psychical Research um, because I thought, well, you know, what's all this about? So there had been stories in the New York Times and everything, and it looked like something quite significant was happening. And one thing that he said, I mean, he said a lot of really fascinating things. But one thing that he said that stuck with me and is appropriate to this question is that he wanted to um, energize research in this area. And he, he certainly did that. Um, I think we've got a lot of um, very enthusiastic, very devoted researchers working in this field. Um, but we're largely working within quite a small circle um, because we meet these barriers uh, of apparent suppression and so on, and a lack of um, public discourse on these subjects. And this competition just really cut through that, broke the whole thing open. Suddenly it was a subject that was being discussed in the newspapers around the world. And, and it did energize research. People had to you know, get up and, and get going. It was, um, it was quite a tremendous feeling because we, you know, we're all working away, um, thinking about this subject seriously, devising experiments or going out in the field. But then suddenly you knew that all the other experts in this field were also kind of out of the stalls and in the race. And it was, it's a very unusual feeling in science to have that, um, to be really in direct competition with everyone else. And so it did energize research and it did break through the boundaries that have been set up around that research. Um, but it, it's, it's an ongoing battle. You know, we, we still meet these boundaries. They have come back. It was particularly interesting to see how the announcement of the competition got the most news coverage as opposed to the announcement of the winners oh. who had, you know, apparently found the answer um, to this really important question. You know, suddenly the... The New York Times didn't follow up on it. And you think, well, why is that? Mm. And so we do face these continuing problems. Um, there have been a number of stories that have come out in the press, um, been working with some journalists and, um, you know, some interesting stories have come out. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work because we do face barriers. We do face an uphill struggle here. Mm, thank you very much. So, so do you do, do both of you think that this contest will help break through some barriers of mainstream research, or do you think it's still those barriers are still hard and fast? I don't know. I. I, I, I I would say that uh, the barriers still exist, and I'll give you a, a good example of it. Uh, it. It's a sad example, actually, but uh, mm -hmm. after 
the announcement was made that I was the grand prize winner. I heard from uh, a good friend of mine, somebody I've known for many years, Stuart Hameroff, who mm-hmm. was the organizer of a major scientific conference sponsored right. by the University of Arizona on consciousness mm-hmm. with a, a special invitation to be uh, the uh, opening night keynote speaker at uh, their upcoming conference, uh, which I was prepared to do and which seemed appropriate uh, under the circumstances. And uh, however, the invitation was then withdrawn when one of the when one of the funders for that organization said uh, we can't have this at a scientific conference. In his opinion, uh, all of the evidence for the existence of the afterlife is strictly anecdotal and does not belong in a scientific conference on consciousness, which, as far as I'm concerned, they have it exactly backwards. People exploring the nature of human consciousness, which is one of the biggest mysteries in all of science and philosophy. And in fact, I'll take it a step further, is the biggest mystery in science and philosophy. Uh, People often say uh, at these scientific conferences, first, we've got to figure out what consciousness is, and then we can begin to look at all of this paranormal evidence and see how it works. But until we know what consciousness is, we we can't address the paranormal side of things. I think they have it backwards. I think they won't ever understand what consciousness is if they're unwilling to look at a large category of evidence that they label paranormal. I totally agree with you, Jeffrey. And... uh... You know, as I always joke with you, when you study the paranormal, for me, it's an everyday thing because it's the paranormal. So, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, uh, so, uh, Leo, do you concur that this, this is, it's just the barriers are still there in mainstream? Well, yes, unfortunately, I do concur. Okay. Um, Yeah, that's what I was saying. You know, the the competition really, got a lot of notice at the beginning, but then didn't get so much notice at the end when you would have expected it to get even more uh, notice. So yes, these, these barriers are, are still there and um, the competition has gone some way to, to getting over them, but it's, it's an ongoing fight, absolutely. Mm. Thank you. And, um, you know, and uh, it's an interesting point that- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say it's an interesting point that um, Jeff said about uh, the issue of, you know, work out consciousness first and then look at the the weird stuff. Because what I found in in writing my essay was that these the so-called paranormal elements really um, helped me to build a model that fitted in with um, modern physics and how the universe is presented in modern physics. And it was through looking at these so-called paranormal um, episodes, experiences that allowed me to think, well, you know, consciousness is something other than we normally think it is for these reasons. And although these reasons may seem um, difficult to accept, they do actually fit with um, a modern physics model of the universe of, of time and space. Mm. And, and so that, you know, that's the nub. That's what we should be using to drive the wedge in here, because we're not we're not really breaking down the existing paradigm. Um, it's, it's already a revolutionary paradigm, and we're at the forefront of that. 
And what we're dealing with instead are kind of a reactionary group who are not really um, scientists in the sense of, you know, going where the method takes them. They're, they're promulgating a particular agenda and uh, a particular stance of scientism. So, you know, I, I, I really see us as the kind of the true scientists here, as opposed to a kind of reactionary um, guard that's, that's trying to prevent knowledge from developing. Mm -hmm, indeed. And I think uh, I read both of your essays, by the way, multiple times, and they're they're absolutely fantastic. So I encourage everybody. It's easy to find these essays on the Web. You just Google the Bigelow uh, Institute of Consciousness contest, essay contest, and you'll be able to find all the essays there, a PDF version where you can read them. Um, and I, I remember in your essay, Jeff, you did you did point out how the field of parapsychology um, used to put a lot of emphasis on, uh, on uh, investigation of the afterlife, but they kind of went away from that because they went away to, to looking at things that they thought were more, uh, I don't know if it's more acceptable, but uh, where they thought the results were perhaps more definitive, having to do with, uh, telepathy, psychokinesis, etc. Um, so, if nothing else, it's, it's revitalizing the field of parapsychology, at least through this contest. So that I'm, I'm very grateful for. So I wanted to go next to uh, dreams, because both of you had... Um you, you, in your essays, you you outline very important dreams. I mean, um, for Jeff, that's how his whole life shifted through the dream of his uh, uncle Harry uh, and this powerful, vivid dream, which I don't want to explain. I want to ask you to, Jeff, in a moment. Um, and that shifted your life and uh, led to this moment in time where we are today. Um, and for you also, Leo, it was not a dream you have but your wife had so i think that was very important your wife had the dream but in the dream i'm gonna let you share but why don't you start leo with that dream please tell our listeners this is very important okay yes yeah, thank you for that introduction yeah absolutely um as you say it was my my wife that um had the dream and it was one of these dreams, you know, where you think it's real. So she she thought it was actually happening. And she thought that I was um, talking to her. And um, she thought that I was um, calling out to her and telling her that um, somebody, and I was saying a name, had died. And she couldn't make out what the name was. And, and so she um, asked me several times, you know, who has died? Um, and still couldn't make out the name. And then in the end, she actually woke up um, because, you know, when you're in a dream state and you, and you feel it's so important, it does actually somehow bring you out of that. And um, so she was quite surprised to find herself um, actually, you know, lying in bed having been asleep because she thought it was it was uh, real and she was talking to me. I looked over and there I am and I'm, I'm fast asleep. <laughs> and, you know, and at the time... Um, a colleague of hers was um, uh, quite ill. He'd had a heart attack and, um, you know, his, his health wasn't looking so good. Um, thankfully, now he, he's better and, and uh, his health is much improved. But she thought that that could possibly be the person referred to. If, if this dream had any significance, then perhaps that was it. And that's what she thought. Um, and, and, you know, she told me about the dream and I, I kind of agreed with her because um, we were planning... Um, to go and visit my parents um, 
my my mother had been ill for for quite some time, and uh, you know it, it was a very serious illness. But we were we were making plans to go down and see her for her, her birthday, which was about um, just two weeks away. So you know we we knew that she was in a, a serious state, but we didn't really expect her to die. And when my wife had this experience, that wasn't the first person that she kind of rationally thought of. But then my father phoned later that morning um, with with the, the the terrible news, of course, um, that my mother had died, and again the, the timing was probably quite approximate to when my wife was having this dream. Um, five a.m. Right. So it was um, about five o'clock in the morning before before my father had gone. Yeah, and you know, and of course, I, I, I mean, at the time, I didn't really think much of it because I was, you know, I, I was just in a state of grief. Um, sure. And, and just kind of dismissed this as um, a coincidence and didn't really think about it. Um, and it was only, it's only later. Um, and, and only really when writing this essay that I was able to, to really sit down and think about it again um, with that, with that kind of healing distance of time from the actual events. Um, and I actually um, wrote most of the essay in the room in which my mother had died, which uh, my father had turned into a, oh. a study. It had been a kind of hospital room for her, a sick room for her. Um, so that was that was also a lot of a lot of writing this essay was me coming to terms with that bereavement actually, and and also with the experience. Mm. Wow, that's a that's a very positive um, outcome, perhaps. That uh, and the fact that you wrote it in the room where you're where she died. That that's that's powerful. That energy is there. So maybe she assisted you in some way. Perhaps did you have any conscious uh, uh, awareness of that? No, not not. Not really. Um, okay. <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was an odd feeling. I wasn't sure that I would that I would really do that, you know, to sit in that room and and, and write. But um, on reflection, I'm glad I did. It was the it was the place to write it. Wow, that's that's very very powerful. And and Jeff, um, you had a uh, a similar experience, although it was your own dream and a very powerful. Uh, lucid dream um, or vivid dream and uh, um, can you please tell us about that uh, it's interesting Glenn that that dream w was 50 years ago to the month mm. oh wow and <clears throat> at the time I was a you know, criminology graduate student living in Berkeley California uh, my uncle Harry, my great uncle Harry, who was 50 years older than me at the time, he was in his 80s, and uh, he appeared to me in the dream, began talking to me in a very deep way about my life. And it's the conversation would have been interesting, but that was hardly the point. It was as if we were communicating at a soul-to-soul -soul level. And 
When I woke up from that dream, I was sobbing, tears of joy, and simultaneously singing one of the most sacred songs from the Jewish religion in which I had been raised, and in which Uncle Harry was uh, a very devout man. And I was just sort of flabbergasted. I'd never had a dream so powerful in my entire life, and, and nor have I since then. And I wrote home to my family immediately and said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. As soon as she got the message, my mother called me and said, how did you know Uncle Harry had just died? In fact, virtually at the same time as my dream, and uh, because California was two hours uh, different than Wisconsin, and Uncle Harry had died around 9.30 in the morning. I was having the dream while I was still in bed at 7.30 a.m. Hmm. And that's what prompted me to switch my career. It was a catalyst. And I, I at the time, was working as a volunteer in the psychiatric unit of San Quentin Prison, conducting group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. And I made a decision at that point that it was no longer enough for me to look at the negative side of human deviance, that I needed to begin to focus my career on the positive side of human deviance, looking not just at psychopathology and crime, but looking at intuition, psychic functioning, creativity, life after death. And I didn't know how to do that. Of course, the uh, university didn't offer courses in those areas, basically. So I, I struggled for a long time over it, but eventually I was guided by additional dreams and ended up creating an individual interdisciplinary doctoral major in parapsychology mm. within, within a year of having had that dream of my Uncle Harry. And now I can look back 50 years later and say it took I, I have been professionally pursuing that interest for half a century, catalyzed by this tiny little taste of the afterlife. Uh, and, and one of the things I discovered is that these experiences can be so powerful that uh, just a few seconds, which is what I experience, maybe a few minutes at the most, changed my life permanently. And I, I'm not the only person to whom that's happened. I included in my Bigelow essay uh, the stories of Bishop James Pike, who resigned as Bishop of California of the Episcopal Church after establishing mediumistic communications with his deceased son, mm -hmm. or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who became one of the most famous influential people of the 20th century uh, for her work on death and dying. She was about to give all that work up. She was very despondent and felt like uh, her interest in uh, the afterlife and death and dying was going nowhere. And she was getting ready to resign when a woman appeared in her hall, hallway, said, can I walk with you to your office, from the elevator to her office? And as they were walking, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross recognized this is a woman she had known who had influenced her. In fact, this is the woman who first introduced her to the concept of the near-death experience, 
which she was one of the pioneers in, in writing about. But ironically, the woman had died 10 months earlier, Mrs. Schwartz. And Mrs. Schwartz was telling her, in the flesh, she seemed to have materialized, you cannot give up this work. Promise me, you will continue. Mm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, well, uh, before I promise, would you mind writing that in a note to me? Mrs. Schwartz wrote the note. Uh, Kubler-Ross kept it and made the promise. Mrs. Schwartz then walked out of the office door. Kubler-Ross was astonished. She looked out of her door into the hallway. There was no one there. But her life had been changed permanently as a result of that encounter. Oh, wow. It's a breathtaking story. And so is your story of, 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 your, of the dream from Uncle Harry. And, and, and uh, it's amazing how lives can be changed. But I also want to give you a lot of credit uh, uh, because... You know, a lot of us receive a, a calling. We receive a calling. It's I, I sometimes equate it to a telephone call. We receive the call, but some of us just leave it on the answering machine. <laughs> You know, not everybody answers the call, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and when uh, and, and so thank you for for doing that, and uh, uh, and uh, we should probably check in with Leo and uh, see how that happened. But I did want to share with uh, actually something probably I don't even think you know, Jeff, that uh, I did my master's research on uh, sleep dreams and death, and my mother was a uh, was a. a a, a psychiatric social worker who uh, specialized in death and dying. Um, so it's these these subjects have been near and dear to my heart for a long time, and. Um, I, uh, in, in my master's thesis, I was studying uh, uh, the dreams of an elderly man with life-threatening illness, and I was trying to see whether the psyche was preparing itself for a continuation after death, as I think Marie-Louise von Franz had suggested it would. And I was also looking into Tibetan dream yoga, you know, where sleep is associated with death because we all go to the clear light every night. Um, the same clear light we, we, we are said to experience when we physically die. Um, and the dreams are associated with the state between death and rebirth. So I'm not surprised. And I know there are a lot of, a lot of uh, stories in the literature, but both of you have had interesting communications um, from uh, people who have just crossed over in the dream state. Uh, but there's another thing about dreams, which I want to bring back in uh, Leo about, because dreams are radically atemporal. I mean, in other words, they don't conform to any concept that we have in the waking life. When I say we, most of Western society, I, uh, um, it's very possible that uh, present company included may not exactly uh, uh, conform to this belief, but, but uh, um, this concept of linear time Time, which is really a fairly new concept. I mean, <laughs> uh, but uh, we still seem to have a trouble not accepting it. But in dreams, this goes out the window. It goes out the window. So, so um, uh, I want to ask you, uh, Leo, first. I'm going to ask you both um, about time. 
you know, you can feel free to bring in dreams or anything else, but what is time? What is time? And, and also, you know, time is looked at so differently cross-culturally from Native Americans to even Latino populations to Western populations look at time very different. So the other question I want to ask you is what is time and then why are we so reluctant to let go of our thinking around time and cross a boundary for where others uh, have uh, creative, unique ideas about time. So I go to you, Leo, first. Okay, thanks, Glenn. Yes, uh, time was a big part of my essay, um, as you can tell from the title. Um, they're called the ghost in the time machine. And I think everybody's familiar with this idea of the ghost in the machine, that um, essentially this um, duality between um, the mind and, and body. So, you know, how, how, they're somehow connected, but, but, but how? Um, and this gives rise to this idea of the ghost in the machine. But the one thing that I was arguing is that um, the, the connection between the ghost and its machine also creates the experience of time that we have. Um, and again, this was um, this is something that fits in with with modern physics. So it wasn't particularly wild. But the way I got there um, was uh, through a rather unusual uh, eureka moment, and that was rereading Charles Dickinson's um, A Christmas Carol. So I mean, everyone's familiar with that, and it contained everything I needed to write this essay. At the beginning of, of the essay, I was thinking, you know, how am I going to structure the argument? What am I going to deal with? And I thought it's got to be a, a bigger picture type issue, not just looking at one particular aspect like the near-death experience or reincarnation or something. But it's got to find something that's going to bring all these apparently different things together because I had this feeling they were connected, but just couldn't really see how at that point. And it was through um, Dickinson's Christmas Carol and his three ghosts that he has um, come to Scrooge and present these different aspects of Christmas to him. So there's the, the ghost of Christmas past, uh, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Mm. And I thought, actually, talking of ghosts, this does fit in with how ghosts are experienced. Now, when I, when I say ghosts, what I mean is something like an, an immaterial identity format that we have. So it, we could call that consciousness, we could call that spirit, um, we could call that a ghost, but we kind of know what we mean when we talk about that without getting bogged down here in the, in the details of it. And looking at these aspects was to really see how people have experienced ghosts that appear to be still in the past. So this classic um, Harry Martindale um, experience where we saw the Roman legionaries, you know, walking through um, a wall and continuing to walk below the surface of the floor because the surface of the floor had been raised since the time of these Roman legionaries having first walked mm -hmm. in that area. So this just seems to be like a witnessing of the past of ghosts in the past. But then we have these situations in which this ghost appears to be in the present. So the, the kind of out-of-body experiences that you can get, um, you know, spontaneously or through training or through um, near-death situations or even actual death situations presents a consciousness or a ghost in the present. And then if we look at 
the aspect of premonitions. And I had a particularly powerful one by a journalist called Irene Kuhn. And she just spontaneously saw herself in the future. And so you think, well, what did she see? How could she see herself in the future? She saw what we might think of as a ghost, but it was of her and it was in the future. And she later lived through that experience. So it came to pass what she had seen. And it also had evidential aspects because it related to the death of her husband, which she was unaware of at that time. So there were additional, um, uh, you know, evidential aspects to that. But just taking those um, examples, I had a model of, of time there in which time appeared to exist all of the time. And this is completely counterintuitive. This is not how we experience time day to day. Um, we, we experience this time's arrow. You know, we, we go from A to B and we can't get back to A in our ordinary waking lives. Mm-hmm. And so that leads people to really kind of, you know, reject these ideas out of hand. I think, okay, well, they, they can't be ghosts of the past. They can't be ghosts of the future because, you know, time moves on and it doesn't go back and it can be seen. But it actually, that model fits in with the model that modern physics has of time and space. So we're aware of um, Einstein's conceptualization of space-time in which time is really has dimensional aspects. And his argument was that time exists in its entirety. The past, present, and future already exist. They're, they're there in physics. You know, if, we, if we're looking at the, the equations, we're, we're struggling with these um, the kind of the, the fundamentals of, of the universe there. We see that the time must exist all of the time. And here, in what is just dismissed as kind of the paranormal, the weird, or people just having coincidences, people just having visions or, you know, hallucinations, what we actually had, getting back to Bohm's quotation, was personal experience that relates to a physics model. So that was that just brought everything together for me. And as I say, that was my eureka moment. It, it made sense of the paranormal experiences, and it brought it into alignment with modern physics. And I think, you know, for me, this is why I say that we're not establishing a new paradigm. We're, we're working within the existing paradigm. It's just that most people don't know how weird and extraordinary this paradigm is already. Uh, yeah, um, Leo, you know, um, uh, I used to be very intimately involved in uh, convening dialogues between uh, uh, quantum physicists and other scientists and Native American elders. Um, and uh what you're saying is is very true. I mean, the, the thing is, the most people in the population don't have any clue of understanding around quantum physics, even though it's been in in uh, in science for over a hundred years. But it still hasn't really permeated. Um, regular consciousness like you were referring to before about people still think about time as an arrow in one of those dialogues by the way uh, uh, Brian Josephson was there he was uh, the Nobel laureate physicist uh, um, was in the mind matter unification project in Cambridge and uh, speaking of time's arrow uh, Brian said that a little known fact is that time flies like an arrow, but fruit flies like a banana. 
<laughs> anyway, that, that's become my wife's favorite uh, thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but it's just, you know, it, it really is. Um, um, time is, a, is something that is experiential. I really appreciated that about your essay where you were looking at uh, 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 consciousness and uh, and particularly postmortem consciousness and and opening up the um, opening up time as a subject so that uh, to believe in the existence of postmortem consciousness you also have to expand your definition of time so I, I I really think that's true I think you hit on something very important well thank you both this has been a fascinating conversation and for our listeners who are hanging on every word. Not to worry, there's more to come. We will continue with the science of life after death next week. Um, but this concludes part one. Uh, so stay tuned next week for the Circle of Original Thinking podcast, part two of the science of life after death. I am looking forward to that very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and the Ecology Prime Media Channel. Produced and edited by Kenichi Sugihara. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. This podcast is made available on Select Books, Inc. Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are normally heard. For more information, go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us, and you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics, there. Thank you for listening, and until next week with Part 2, many blessings of good health and well-being to all.